Welcome to another edition of the Fab Four Free Four or And welcome to another edition of Fab Four Free for All, the weekly all talk Beatles and related radio show on the internet, podcast, whatever you want to say. It just sounds sexier when we don't use the word podcast because all you people out there don't believe in podcasts, or that was just John Lennon. I, I don't, don't believe, believe in, in podcasts. podcasts. Yeah, thank you. Anyway, I'm today's moderator, Mitch Axelrod, and joining me today, as they always do, unfortunately, are Rob Leonard. Unfortunately, what's your problem, man? I, I'm, we, uh, without me and Tony, you're nothing. I'm nothing, no matter what. Just <laughs> without ask my, you and me, Tony's ask, nothing. <laughs> and without you two, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he's something. Oh, he's something. That was oh, he's something. All right. Uh, so Rob Leonard. <laughs> Hi, how you doing? Well, no, wait, time out. He gives us this whole nasty, angry thing, and he's like, "Hi, how you doing?" <laughs> I, you know, I love working with you guys. Ah, yes. <laughs> the check cleared, and you, Tony Chiquato. <laughs> Hello. Oh, that was just too boring. Yeah. Do something better. Do more. Show. Hi, everybody. Hi. Now I'm gonna Hi. get the. Oh, great. There you go. I'm going to get the uh, the actual yeah, 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 the, yeah. the bad things. Who cares? Anyway, we often read. Well, we don't often read, but when we do read, we read a lot of Beatles stuff. There's a lot of Beatles books. A, a lot of Beatles books that we're covering and have covered and will cover. One of them is a a book that's a very different Beatle book. It really intertwines the Beatles and puts them in context with a lot of other events that happened early on in 1964 and late '63. And joining us on the phone is our buddy, Al Sussman, who is the author of the book Change in Times. And it's Change in with a, an apostrophe. You can't afford the G. Um, so it's Change in Times. <laughs> it's, a, it's a private press. We have to yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's uh, 101 Days That Shaped a Generation on Parading Press. So, and welcome, Al Sussman. Can I just do the commercial really quick? Well, yeah. Books are good, but parading's better. Sorry. Oh, just, Lord help us. Al is on the phone. Al, welcome to Fab Four Free for All. Gentlemen, thank you, or, some, or something resembling gentlemen. <laughs> I was about <laughs> to say where. <laughs> we should say that Al is the executive editor of Beatle Fan Magazine, which is now the only real, in U.S. at least, yeah. magazine dedicated to the Beatles. How many, uh, how many not, years Nine is only a, a PDF right. file. Right. I mean, but, but we just published. passed the 35th anniversary. Unbelievable. Wow. Very cool. In the day and age now where... That medium is dying out. I think it's really cool to still have a physical magazine in your hand that you can look at. And I'm a subscriber, so I. I, Yeah, I think it's really cool. So thank you very much to you, Bill King, and all the other uh, contributing editors. And and you are an occasional contributor to the magazine as well, right? Right. I used to be more regular, but especially the last couple of years with finishing the book up and all, and now trying to market it, I've been more of a occasional contributor. But I do have a piece that's either going to be in the next issue of Beatle Fan or will be on the, the new Something New blog that Bill set up fairly recently. Now, before we even get into the book, in our past incarnation as Fab Forum, yes. you were known as the curmudgeon, and we actually had the curmudgeon's <laughs> corner. That's right. And, because the one thing that you always told us, and you know what, rightfully so, and I love the fact that you can give us this take on things, you are a true first-generation Beatle fan. 
Damn straight. Yes, and proud of it. <laughs> and, and proud of it. And we should have T-shirts that just say first gen Beatle that's fan." A you know? Really, we really. That, should. That's, that's actually a good idea. We should make those up. Just at least uh, make hello. one for Al. Yeah, really, just one, and then we'll make them up for everyone. <laughs> um, and then write Al's a first gen. No, but that's really important because although I'm, I like to say I'm first generation. I was only two, and yeah. I do have a lot of memories. But I mean, you, you at the time were. How old? In your teens? I was 14. I was in eighth grade. Okay, so you have a better perspective than us here. Oh, about... I may as well have had a target on my back. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but, I, but it's very, very important because, you know, we can, we can say what we feel and what we thought happened then. But you've taken us to task a lot of times, and rightfully so, on things we've said. because Many you, times. you were there. Well, and, yeah. and okay, that's yeah. okay because... Al and the other first-gen fans, because we have a lot of first-generation fans out there who listen, thank goodness. Uh, but you really would know what happened. Right. Being male, I wasn't at the, at the airports or out in front of the Plaza Hotel and all, but I'm in probably that grouping with the Bruce Springsteens and Billy Joels and Tom Petty's and guys... Except not as rich. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, hardly. Uh, who became male Beatle fans, which is a, a whole different kettle of fish. Al, the book is subtitled 101 Days That Shaped a Generation, November 22nd, 1963 to March 1st, 1964. Now, we, we've all always have been, you know, and we like to say the words ingrained in our brain, the fact that, you know, the Beatles came along. And by the way, this book is not only about the Beatles. And we'll yeah, I was going to say, I would, I would call this definitely what you'd consider a it's a pop culture book. Yes, it it's definitely really is. Uh, well, actually, even book. more than that, it's really it's more a, of a like a history, definitely of that period. Yeah. because you know, really, pop culture only uh, covers maybe a third of the book. True, right? That's true. true. But one thing you you sort of break the myth or bust the myth. Yes, is that you know the Beatles came along when the, when we needed them. We, we needed were, them because we were so downtrodden. Yeah, the and, country and, was depressed. Everybody was in the blahs, and then the Beatles came, and, and the world went from black and white better. to color. Yeah. Well, you know, I, well, I do want to get to that black and we white will, color yeah. analogy because it's a really good one. And again, we we are sort of going to keep the thread of the Beatles in context here. But Al, the the hundred and one days. Why did you choose those days? When I first came up with the idea of the book. I, you know, obviously, November 22nd, 1963 is one of the three most important dates in the electronic age. The others two being December 7th, 1941, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, and the other one, obviously, September 11th, 2001. For their its absolute out-of-nowhere shock value and the long-range implications, those are the three major events of the of the electronic age. So obviously for my generation, November 22nd is a generational demarcation line, but I've always felt that you have to kind of widen that line to take in the impact of the Beatles. So I thought, when I first thought of doing this book, I thought, okay, well, how far do I widen that line? 60 days only gets me to mid to late January, which is not even at the point where the Beatles came over here. Right. Uh, not even to the point where I want to hold your hand and become number one nationally. Right. Ninety days would only get me to the middle of the of their first American visit. So then I thought a hundred. Okay, a hundred days. That sounds okay. And a hundred was March first. I didn't realize that March first, <laughs> in nineteen sixty four, 
1964 was a leap year. So March 1st was 101 days. But doesn't that sound sexier? It does. <laughs> and actually, you know, like, you know, yeah, it, it because sort of does. it's kind of a, especially since I've always felt that this is kind of a textbook example of a period of change, I figured, hey, in fact, that actually was going to be the original title, it was going to be Change in Times 101. But then we figured, why well, have 101 twice in the title? So that's why we went. And also, you know, one of your fellow Parading Press authors... Oh, Mr. Buskin. ...has yes. Beatles 101. Yes. stole stole my title. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope he, he is, paid you a little bit. He admitted, he admitted as such. Actually, it's a, it's a great thread to go, you know, through all of the Parading Press books. Every time... You know, Robert Rodriguez should have done 101 solo Beatle things, you know. No, <laughs> well, we're going to, on our 101st episode, we'll dedicate to you guys. To you, when we, yes. When we get well, there. let me put it to you this way. We, that title, or at least 101 and the subtitle, may come up again in the future. Ooh. Well, also, 101, if you're taking college, is usually well, that's means why I said Beatles 101. Exactly, you know. yeah, yeah. Right. So, November 22nd, great starting point. But again, you bust that myth we were all downtrodden. There were so many things that went on between the November 22nd and even, forget about March 1st, February 7th. Yes. I mean, let's talk a little bit about them. Now, you as a first-gen fan, or actually a person of age, of a teenager at that time, right? Um, tell us what you, know, you thought when Kennedy was killed and then how your feeling was, because you mentioned in the book, the first few days, you go to day 10 even, or 10 days after, if I'm not mistaken. So you, you do talk a little bit about the time everything in the world was, was not changing, mm-hmm. but everything in the world was just different for those few days prior and after his, his death. Oh, yeah. It was, I mean, really to a great extent, it, nothing would ever be quite the same again. But everything, if, let me just stop you one quick yeah. sec, sorry. Because you know what? You also tell in the book... That after the fact, we all, just sort of like John Lennon when he was killed, you know, he became a saint to everybody. Right. And Kennedy sort of had the same thing. He was, like, deified after the fact, but he really wasn't that universally loved prior to his death. No. Oh, no, he was not universally popular. I mean, there were, you know, anecdotal stories about the announcement of his death being made in schools in the South and there being cheering. Wow. Uh, yeah, because in the South, he was considered to be... Uh, first of all, an appeaser to the Russians over Cuba. Right. And also his very belated stand on civil rights, he was considered to be a meddler in the affairs of the, the southern states. So he was not beloved. I mean, that's why he went to Texas in the first place. Right. But in much of the country, especially to the youth of the, of the country, he was a hero. I mean, he was in a week before the assassination he was in New York and made a surprise appearance at a CYO, Catholic Youth Organization, convention in Manhattan. And I remember seeing a news film of that actually not too many years ago. And it's some of the comments, especially from some of the girls there, were almost like similar to Beatlemania-type comments. But also they were very impressed with him you know, just as a president, as a public figure. So he really was a hero to the youth of the country. But again, he was not universally beloved. But, well, you yep. know, this happens 
basically almost after any president dies. I mean, in, in 1923, when Warren G. Harding died, who you know now is, is looked on as one of the worst presidents in the entire uh, right. history of the country, right. there was mourning. Well, when your 10,000 in one day is the shape the generation comes out, <laughs> you can include Warren G. Harding. Yes, exactly. But our generation is Tanya G. Harding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things I, I, I enjoy about this book is history tends to get compressed after a while because day-by-day stuff, you know, no one cares about day-by-day mm-hmm. right. stuff. And you right. sort of pull it apart a little bit and, and sort of give it back its uh, due. Uh, one of the things I do enjoy about this book being a New Yorker, as you talk about uh, New York radio and how important it was, and especially it connects with the Beatles story. Would you care to go into that? Because I know Alan, the Commudging Corner, whether he's writing for us or coming up to us, uh, I've always said that, you know, WMCA broke the Beatles, but then Al always reminds me, well, Scott Muni, Scott Muni, Scott Muni. So please, please fill us in on uh, some of the stuff uh, you've talked to us, and that's also included in the book. Right. When I Want to Hold Your Hand was actually released in America on December 26th. That day, WMCA did debut the song, but, you know, they just debuted it as a, you know, just another record. And it really didn't catch fire until really right around New Year's Day. And in the last survey of the year, WABC had I Want to Hold Your Hand at number 35, which was really just a random number. The next week, January 7th, it was number one. Hmm. And apparently, Scott Muni was, this was in, in an era when the nighttime DJ was really the most powerful one at a top 40 station. Because it, the kids could actually hear him. Yeah, exactly. It's not like now where it's always the, you know, the morning show is always the sort of the, the power engine of the station. But in those days was the nighttime DJ. And um, on WMCA, B. Mitchell Reed was really more of a jazz and blues and folk guy. And so he kind of um, kept the Beatles kind of at arm's length with kind of a show-me attitude. Murray the K, who, of course, made a whole career out of, or the latter part of his career at least, out of, you know, the whole dubbing himself the fifth Beatle and really uh, hyping his involvement with them. When I Want to Hold Your Hand broke, he was on vacation in Florida. So it really was Scott Muni Hmm. at WABC that really got behind the record and got behind the Beatles and, in fact, started a fan club for them before the NEMS people were able to get over here to set up the official club in New York. So he, he was really their first real champion and, of course, that remains so for the remainder of his career. The, the afternoon after John Lennon's murder, Scott came on the air on WNEWFM, which is where most people remember him from, and said that they made a pledge that he would begin every show for the remainder of his career with either a John Lennon or Beatles song, and he did for the remainder of his career until he had the, the stroke that eventually killed him in 2004. Well, you know, getting back a little bit to Kennedy, what brought this country out of the doldrums? Because it's not the Beatles. It, right. it, it wasn't the Beatles. So right, because what it, was doesn't, it? it doesn't time out. Not at I all. I think it was just simply, it was really the first week after the assassination, because it was, and I'm not, 
you know, I don't want to, you know, minimize the event at all. It was a tremendous psychic body blow. I mean, to this day, there are homes in this country, in Ireland especially, and around the world, where you will see prominently displayed either a portrait or a photograph of President Kennedy. Yep, I was in Ireland a number of years ago, and you're a thousand percent correct, Al. Absolutely. And so for the first week after the assassination, we were, to put it in boxing terms, we were like a fighter on rubbery legs. Mm. The country was, you know, and of course that was also Thanksgiving week. Right. And so we really were kind of in suspended animation. Wasn't the Macy's Day Parade even postponed a little bit? No, in fact, uh, that was something that I was very surprised to discover, that the parade went on as scheduled. Only a few Uh, days later. Yeah, on uh, six days after the assassination, because basically I think there was really a business aspect to that. Yeah, of course. Because NBC, of course, even though it wasn't the three-hour, you know, Extravaganza. Extravaganza for Broadway shows that it is now. It was really 90 minutes. But NBC had lost a fortune over that previous weekend in commercial time lost and also the production costs for having to cover an event of this scope. Well, also the fact that the NFL played that weekend. The yes. NFL you played, know, yeah, you know, with Pete Rozelle, the commissioner of the NFL, he went to his grave saying that that was the biggest mistake he ever made. Yeah, well, you know what? And here in New York after 9-11, uh, I can only equate it to, you know, we didn't play sports again until the Mets got back. A week and later. A week, uh, later. Uh, Ten days later, yeah. yeah. And then that sort of brought us, we needed to explode somehow. Yeah. Uh, and we did in jubilation, even yeah. though, you know, we weren't actually jubilant about it. But, right. But we needed a, a release. And maybe, I know it was a business decision, maybe playing those games... And maybe having the parade was their way to at least get back to normalcy, but again, having nothing to do with the Beatles, because that wasn't for another couple of months. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or a month and a half. What happened was, you know, that first week, like I said, we were on, definitely on rubbery legs, but by the first week in December, people were beginning to basically go on with their lives again, and especially teenagers, because unless you have a death in your family unless there's some family trauma of one type or another, teenagers generally, I don't know if about today, but at least in that era, teenagers bounce back mm. from national traumas faster than perhaps adults did. And right. so really by the first or second week in December, most, I mean, I was probably more concerned with, you know, whether the Giants were going to win the NFL's Eastern Conference Championship oh. than anything connected with the Kennedy assassination. You know, again, not forgetting it, not at all diminishing its impact, but it was just simply a matter of us going on with our lives. And in fact, in the middle of December, Time Magazine had a, an article that led off their national news section called The Mood of the Nation. And they said, basically, that people were simply going on with their lives. You know, even though there were still lines of hundreds of people lined up at Arlington Cemetery to view the the temporary grave of President Kennedy, still, you know, most people were still going on with their lives. They illustrated it by talking about an office building in the middle of Detroit 
and people, you know, just going in and out, you know, on a, on a typical business day and not even taking notice of the fact that the wreath above the door was not a green or red Christmas wreath, but was a black morning wreath. Yeah, mm-hmm. So it was just a matter of, of us getting back to normal. But yeah, time-wise, this was still, you know, uh, several weeks before I Want to Hold Your Hand took off and before Beatlemania began <clears throat> to really kind of settle in. Although underneath, you know, the fuse of the dynamite was already burning down because of the fact that there had already been coverage of the Beatles in the American media, and then, of course, the whole Marsha Albert, Carol James scenario in Washington. But that was prior, the media was prior to, it was November, like, 18th. Yes, because the scenes of uh, Beatlemania outside the London Palladium, when when the Beatles appeared on Sunday night at the London Palladium, and then at the uh, Prince of Wales Theatre, when they played the Rail Command performance, that got the attention of the Fleet Street media in London, but it also got the attention of the London bureaus of the American media. And so by mid-November, there had been short pieces in Time and Newsweek on the Beatles. NBC had a, uh, had a piece the Monday night before the assassination, November 18th, on the Huntley-Brinkley Report, narrated by, of all people, Edwin Newman. Yeah. And the morning of November 22nd, and we have to thank Bruce Spizer mm-hmm. for his research on We always that. do. Bruce was able to discover that on the morning of November 22nd, Alexander Kendrick, who was CBS's London Bureau Chief, his report on the Beatles appeared on the CBS Morning News with Mike Wallace. And again, according to Bruce's research was scheduled to be on that night's CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite, which it obviously didn't run because the Cronkite News was simply folded into the ongoing coverage right. of the assassination. And the, the report finally ran on December 10th. And in the interim, a fairly lengthy piece on the Beatles had appeared in the New York Times Magazine. So kind of the wheels of media attention had already begun to spin, and they call it the fuse of the dynamite was already beginning to burn down. And to be honest, you use it so beautifully and eloquently in the book where you say it's a Wizard of Oz comparison, where once the dynamite blows up, the black and white world changes to color, and I think that is a perfect place where we should stop right now, take a okay. break on Fab Four Free For All, and when we get back, we'll visit the Munchkins. <laughs> right after this. Hi, everyone. Just wanted to let you know that besides Fab Four Free For All, each of the three of us are involved in our own individual projects. Mitch Axelrod's two books, Beetle Tunes, the only book about the cartoon Beatles show, and Little Billy and Baseball Bob, can be found through all of your good booksellers online, including Amazon.com, or if you'd like autographed copies, Contact Mitch on Facebook. And my buddy Rob Leonard has a great Beatles show that he's been doing for 20 years called Beatles Songs, and it's on every Friday night from 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And you can listen to it online. It's streaming at www.ncc.edu slash WHPC, and also look for it on TuneIn.com. 
And Tony Truquardo is the host of 4F, free format for free, on WCWP 88.1 on Long Island. He's on every Monday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and also at www.wcwp.org. Also available on TuneIn.com. And we are back with author Al Sussman, the author of the book Changing Times, November 22nd, 1963 to March 1st, 1964, 101 Days That Shaped a Generation. And we were talking about the dynamite that became Beatlemania. And as we said, you know, you, you likened it to like The Wizard of Oz, where when Dorothy lands on the Wicked Witch, it becomes a color scene from black and white. And we've often said here when the Beatles remasters came out in 9909, that it was almost like opening up a window and, and getting fresh air because now you've got the old versus the new. So what happened when the Beatles came here? I mean, what was the mood of the country right before they came here and when they hit down? Well, uh, again, I want to hold your hand, really took off yep. uh, right after the new year. And it was very sudden. I mean, uh, you know, for instance, I mean, when I heard I want to hold your hand for the first time, it was already number one on WABC. It was the, the day that it became number one, January 7th. So it was very quick. And I think there were some people that, you know, were kind of caught off balance and thought, you know, what is all this hype? Especially since I want to hold your hand, as quaint as it may sound now, was such a new sound at that point in time to ears attuned, at least in the last few weeks to <laughs> Dominique and yeah. popsicles and icicles. And oh, I love that stuff. Come on. And, oh, yeah, it's great. It's I great know. stuff. But my first listen, it sounded like something from another planet. But the girls immediately turned on to them, which was very interesting. You know, I mean, you know, probably a week before, they hadn't, you know, hadn't heard the name Beatles, and yet they immediately turned on to them. There was a lot of publicity hype. You know, the Capitol publicity machine was going full blast, especially here in the East Coast of America. And you were in the East Coast of America. Right. So did you feel all of that? Did you see the publicity? You know, the bumper stickers, the, the newspapers, the magazine, whatever it was. Did you feel any of that Capitol publicity machine in your area? You know, actually, it wasn't so much the Capitol publicity machine. Because what had happened really was that Top 40 Radio had really kind of co-opted the publicity machine. Because mm. I never saw any Beatles are coming stickers or, you mm. know, any of the, or that newspaper that they put together or right. really any of the trappings. But by the middle of January, it was almost as if Beatles music had, had taken over Top 40 Radio, even though at that moment in time there were only three records. In fact, in the afternoon, Dan Ingram on WABC at 5 in the afternoon would play I Want to Hold Your Hand, She Loves You, and Please Please Me every day. And this was in an era when they really didn't play two or three records in a row. They generally would play one record, then a couple of commercials. Another record, a couple of commercials. This was playing three records in a row at the same time every day, which was pretty much unheard of. Al, my question for you is, I want to stay with the radio thing. Yeah. Had radio done this with other artists who were bigger a little bit before? I mean, the Beach Boys were pretty popular at the time, and but had radio attached itself to the Beatles 
the way it attached itself to the Beatles, had, had that been done before with other acts along the way? No, absolutely Because it, it, it's a, one thing about your book that gets me is this, it just sort of happened. There was no one saying, well, we should attach ourselves because we did this before. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to be attached. And I'm wondering also, is, is it because they're from Great Britain that the specialness of being you know, British, so to speak? Yeah, I think that was part of it, the fact that they were from England, that they did have that unusual-looking haircut and all. But I think it was really more the, um, more the music. Wow. The fact that those three records really stood out from what was the typical top 40 fair of the day. Not that there wasn't good music. There was plenty of good music out there. But those three records, they really were kind of beacons to a new era of music. But no, uh, I mean, you know, when Elvis took off in 1956, top 40 radio was really in its infancy. And so it really didn't, you know, they didn't really get behind Elvis in the way that radio did behind the Beatles. So basically you're saying part of the charm of the Beatles is connected to the fact that Top 40 Radio is sort of coming into its own at the same time. Very much so, because really, and especially WABC, because it was rapidly becoming the biggest Top 40 station in the country because of the fact that at night, you could hear WABC in 38 states. You know, I, where I lived, in, uh, I lived at that time in Maywood, New Jersey, which is about, I don't know, maybe 10 miles west of New York. And WABC's antenna was in Lodi, which was the next town. And so you could hear WABC in the telephone. <laughs> you know, these are in the days your of wires. Your teeth, probably, in your fillings, you were probably yeah, getting just, uh, just about, yeah. This is back in the days of, you know, wired telephones. And, I mean, literally, I would pick up the phone and be able to hear Scott Muni or Cousin Bruce. Mm. <laughs> well, Made it, you feel very in touch with them, I guess. One more thing I want to bring up about the radio thing. When Pete Fornatel was alive, we interviewed him, and we talked about the influence of the Beatles on... FM radio when it first started, right. and Pepper and other bands obviously doing their stuff sort of influenced the what was known then as the FM underground, and the Beatles really sort of helped establish Top 40 in many ways. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm listening also, there was these uh, John Lennon WMCA promos that are floating around on the internet, right. mm-hmm. and it's, it's amazing that he said all this stuff, you know, Jack Spector, thanks for breaking uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand in New York, and he's singing along with the good guys, and he's, mm-hmm. it's, it's amazing that all this stuff cause was floating around. Uh, oh, and, yeah, because they were and, and then helping him out. They were apparently very fascinated with Top 40 Radio because of the fact that there wasn't anything like it, really, in, in England. I mean, you know, there might be Radio Luxembourg, and, you know, Radio Caroline, you know, hadn't even begun yet. But the light program on, uh, on the BBC was not quite what Top 40 Radio was here. So along with putting up with Murray Decay, when he, after he latched himself onto them, they were all only too willing you know, to do uh, IDs for the stations and do interviews and things like that. In fact, Brian had to finally, toward the end of the tour, had to say, enough. We're basically giving these people free advertising. Yeah, but that's what you do. He didn't realize that you know that's what you do for radio. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's the, true. And the funny thing is that uh, it really didn't. Again, despite 
Murray the K's hype about, you know, being the fifth Beatle and all that, it really didn't help WINS much because, you know, as a 14-year-old at the time, the people that were my age, we really didn't listen to Wins because we considered that the station that the older teenagers listened to. <laughs> With 17-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, the 17 or 18-year-olds, exactly. And their listenership was dropping precipitously, and it was proven a year later because just over a year later, they dropped the rock and roll format and went to all news, which is the format they have to this day. It's called minting money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, you bring up uh, a bunch of things uh, that we're probably not going to get to in this because there's so much to talk about. But mm-hmm. one of the things you mentioned, two things, you mentioned the civil rights and you also mentioned that as a country, our legs were rubbery, sort of like a boxer. Yeah. And I think it's a perfect segue for the Beatles meeting with Muhammad Ali because... Oh, Cassius Clay at the time, right. sorry. You know, most people see those photos, and you talk about the, the meaning in the book, and he really, you know, as much as we see those playful, lovely photos, he really didn't have an understanding of what the Beatles were all about at that time, did he? Oh, no, oh, no, no. <laughs> Especially because, really, Cassius Clay's musical taste ran more to, you know, kind of uptown R&B to Sam Cooke, who, in fact, the Beatles liked. Right. You know, I, I get, they probably had fairly similar musical tastes, but all he knew about the Beatles was that they were very popular and that they had been on the Ed Sullivan Show because he was busy training for the fight with Sonny Liston. Right. And, and not to mention the fact that they were on the show when Sonny Liston was in the audience. Yeah, so exactly. That makes them automatically, uh, you know, their opponents, right? <laughs> A target, so to speak. Yeah, well, they, they, in fact, because even they felt that Liston was going to win the fight, they actually went to Liston's camp first to try to ha- set up a photo op, and Liston's camp would have nothing to do with them. But it's funny because it's so weird, it's ironic, because as you say in the book, and there's speculation that Cassius Clay, after the, the whole meeting, all that playful stuff, said, who were those faggots? And, I, and you know, not yeah. derogatory to anybody out. You know, just, we're using the word in, his, in historical right. terms here. But it's weird because the Beatles have been known to champion black music. Oh, yeah. And so and it's ironic. And became very major proponents of the civil rights movement. Oh, very major of the civil rights movement. And Motown. Motown. But it, I'm talking about being outspoken, about literally, the about the right. integration. They wouldn't play at segregated they were, right. shows. Exactly. Right. So why don't we talk a little bit about that, Al? Yeah, well, I mean, just the mere fact that they had a, uh, as Chuck Gunderson has mentioned, the fact that the Beatles had a writer in their contract uh, for their summer tour in, in 1964 that they were not going to play before segregated audiences at all. You know, yeah. under no circumstances would they play before a segregated audience. You know, because they didn't see the difference at all. You right. know, they weren't at all prejudiced. There's, Chuck, again, tells the story of, of John Lennon jumping into a swimming pool with members of the Exciters. Right. Wow. And who were, a, you know, a black male and female vocal group. And... You know, friends, touring mates, uh, so, you know, it, was, it wasn't as if, oh, I'm jumping into with, with a bunch of blacks, you know, it was right. like, who cares? And the fact that they were, you know, major champions of Motown, you know, earlier, the fact that there were three Motown covers on their second British album at a time when Motown was not yet really a big deal. Right. Smokey Robinson's always said that, that besides yeah. bringing money into the company, it sort of legitimized... 
ended up legitimizing Motown because the Beatles covered him, so why not everyone yeah. else? Yeah, and John's near idolatry of Arthur Alexander, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. They were, you know, they were major fans. In fact, really, by that point, if you look at those those lists of, you know, their likes and dislikes that uh, Tony Barrow put out sometime in 63, at that point, their musical tastes had really kind of moved on from the early rock and roll to, you know, kind of uptown R&B by that point, because you're seeing names like Ray Charles and Sam Cooke and Chuck Jackson, right? you know, et cetera, et cetera. So they were very much major proponents, certainly on a, on a musical scale, you know, of the, of the black performers. Speaking of performers, you know, you go up to March 1st, and right. obviously the Beatles, big, I'm going to say the big date was February 9th. Right. But you go up to March 1st, and there's a lot of stuff happening in music at that time. I mean, you know, even Barbara Streisand, I mean, we have to talk about that a little bit yes. with people. And they were very cognizant, her people, so to speak, were very cognizant of the Beatles. But, you know, you mentioned there's a date, March 8th also, which is seven days after, so it's not 108 days. Right. But you do mention, you know, March 8th was the, the Dave Clark Five. That was the night that the Dave Clark Five made their first appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show. Now, let me ask you a question. They were, so to speak, well, everybody puts them as the rivals to the Beatles, you know, the next biggest thing, so to speak. Um, well, they were, that was only because of the fact that they were the first of the British bands to come over here after the Beatles, plus the fact that, that Glad All Over had knocked I Want to Hold Your Hand out of number one on the British charts, although as, as Dave Clark himself admits, it took seven weeks to do it. (laughs) Yeah. We also see that um, Sullivan ended up kind of embracing the Dave Clark Five, too, Oh, yeah, because especially because they were very clean-cut. I mean, um, Dave Clark at that time looked like a a matinee idol. Right. And he was very much the focal point of the group, and they were very natty with those black blazers and the the white turtlenecks and all. And so they were very much kind of in... Sullivan's traditional showbiz standards. Yeah, and I would guess the management also made them more accessible to Sullivan, maybe in a way that, you know, the Beatles weren't as accessible to Ed after those first couple of appearances. You know, the Beatles' whole scenario changed so dramatically, but well, Clark's I think it did, was, you know. I, I think that was mainly because just the fact that the Dave Clark Five that had much more success at the outset in America than they had in England, so they kept coming over here. Sure. They probably came sure. over here, I don't know, three or four times during 64, whereas the Beatles only came over the one other time. Right. And that was right. in the summer. The tour. Al, um, doing this book, I'm sure uh, you remembered or found stuff that maybe you had forgotten about oh, concerning well, the Beatles and, I guess, the regular history part. What, what were some of the things you found out that you sort of just forgot about? Oh, you know, just huge, incredible things, particularly since Mitch mentioned Barbara Streisand. Yeah. uh, The fact that Funny Girl had such a rocky road in getting to Broadway. In fact, it didn't debut on Broadway until a month after it was supposed to, which actually puts it outside the 101 days window. But there was so much involved with getting it, to Broadway, the very rocky trial runs that it had in Philadelphia and in Boston and all, and I didn't know any of that. And, uh, and also just how big a success Hello, Dolly, which did debut in the middle of January, 
was a Hello Dolly was really kind of the first of the big mega successful. I mean, there had been big Broadway shows before, you know, My Fair Lady in the 50s, Oklahomans and South Pacific in the 40s. But Hello Dolly was the first one that just ran for a long time and made a lot, a lot of money. And that was the first song to kick the Beatles out of the uh, number one slot on Billboard. Yes. After uh, Louis Armstrong's yeah. cover of Hello, Dolly was the record that... And, and the funny thing is that at that time, we really didn't know. I mean, the, you know, Louis Armstrong was kind of like a regular on variety shows. And we had no idea what a huge figure he was in the history of American music. I mean, he is, to a great extent, the man who made jazz a viable genre, musical genre. He helped do that, yeah. Oh, yeah, he he was absolutely huge. But, yes, it was Louis Armstrong that finally broke the Beatles' uh, hammerlock on on the number one position after, I guess, what, about three months. And he was a Beatle fan, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. We, now, Al, I, I got to ask you, uh, what do you remember about February 9th watching the Sullivan Show? What are your memories of that that hour? Well, of, the of funny time? thing is, is that I was actually a holdout because, as I mentioned, my original reaction to I want hearing I want to hold your hand for the first time was negative, and it was made more negative by the fact that the next day there's all these girls at school going crazy over this group that they hadn't heard of a week before. So I really just kind of took the, the curmudgeonly. I was, I was a curmudgeon even then. A <laughs> 14-year-old curmudgeon. A 14-year-old curmudgeon. <laughs> and so I wasn't buying into it. And I really, especially going into the Sullivan shows, I took the attitude of, okay, Beatles, you show me how good you are. And the first show actually didn't do it. It was the second show, the one from Miami Beach, that made Miami. me... A- that Miami Beach, Miami Beach, <laughs> that made me a fan, wow. because they were playing live in a hotel ballroom, not a TV studio. They were on a small stage. You know, if you see the, if you sure. see the DVD, you know, they're on a small stage. They're very close together. You know what mix there was had Paul's bass and Ringo's drums very predominant. So, and yes. that's hey, that's the best. You know, the best rhythm section in rock and roll. And so that was the sound that was predominant. They were only a few months removed from playing ballrooms in England. So they were really in their element at that moment. And so that performance impressed me a lot more. In fact, especially probably if there's one moment that made me a fan, it was, it was when they performed This Boy. Because, yeah. you know, I'm 14 years old, so I'm not really that musically sophisticated. And seeing the three of them gathered around one mic... And then, you know, at the last line of the middle eight, Paul and George fall away from the microphone, and John wails out that one last line. I yeah. just thought that was so cool. No, <laughs> it was. was. It, no, you're right. You're it's right. iconic. I mean, and if you watch the rehearsals, it's actually pretty funny, too, because yes. they're floating out there. But I could easily see where you would be taken in, especially... You know, not a female now. Now you're a male, and you're looking yeah. for music, not just, you know, sex appeal. Right. And you get it. In, yeah. in that. And then in the third one, even though it was filmed first, the mix is so much better, and you really get the Beatles rocking out. Yes, um, and you, shout. Yes, yeah. yes. It's just so well done. I'm glad that actually that third one was shown 
third. And yeah. it wasn't the opposite way around. I'm yeah. glad they taped it because it actually ended up, even though the Beatles were back in England at that time yeah. uh, doing Big Night Out, I'm glad that it, it worked out that way because I think it worked out musically the best for the third show. Yeah. But in any case, you know, we've touched on so much, Al, and there's so much more that people will read in your book. Again, it's called Changing Times, 101 Days That Shaped a Generation on Parading Press. Uh, we'll have a link to it on our site. There already is on the front uh, yes, page. Yes, there is on the front page. Great. Yeah. Cool. No, well, there is on there's the, the carousel. Uh, we have a carousel of recommendations. Carousel of stars. Which is very nice. We, yeah. literary we appreciate stars. that. We appreciate you taking a few minutes with us. And we see you all the time at the Fest. You help out tremendously for many, many years at the Fests. And he's also called and, in on Beatles songs, too. And, and if yeah. I could just toss in uh, real quickly, Al, a uh, shout-out to our mutual friend, because I know that he busted your ass about getting this book done. So I'm sorry he didn't get to see it published. I know. That's one of the great but, regrets, that every time I saw Pete the, the last few years, basically his, his rejoinder was, Turn around, go home, and write. Yeah. And we Every should say time. it's Pete Fornatel. Pete Fornatel, yeah. yeah. So somewhere so, he's reading this. Somewhere he's reading this. You and got hearing it. us. I yeah. Helps out. So. yeah, but we appreciate it, Al. And, we, and for people who are going to be at the Chicago Fest, you will be there as well? I'll be there, and I'll and for the first time, at least uh, the plan is right now, I'll be at the L.A. Fest as well. That's Excellent. awesome in October. So for Fab Four Free For All... This has been Mitch Axelrod, your moderator, and joining me has been... Rob Leonard. And... Tony Chiguardo. And again, Al Sussman, we thank you so much. Go buy the book. You'll enjoy it tremendously. Absolutely. And we will talk to you real soon. Thanks very much. Fab Four Free For All was edited and produced by Tony Chiguardo at Word of Mouth Studios in Westbury, New York. The opening and closing theme is My Dolly by the band The Badge, featuring longtime listener Jeff Slate, available on its debut album, Digital Retro, and recent Best Of compilation, as well as from the Fab Four Free-For-All website. Thanks for listening to Fab Four Free-For-All. Welcome to another edition of the Fab Four Free-For-All. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. All. No, that would be this. We're doing the, that would be welcome to another edition of the Fab Four Free For All. Thank you for creating the Vietnam War. You're I'm welcome. I'm going to go out and have some Condoleezza rice. <laughs> and chicken. <laughs> Can we please? I'm leaving that in. That's the intro. <laughs> we just lost Condoleezza rice. Oh. And we just lost Condoleezza oh. rice. Anyway. Okay.